What I'm going to do is we're supposed to be in 1 Corinthians 7. It's 40 verses long. I'm not going to cover all that. And so instead of covering part and then waiting a month till I come back and teach the rest, I'm going to skip to chapter 8. And then I'll hit chapter 7 back up in December. And this year, once again, our December, just like last year, we're back on full. We got a Christmas musical, I think on the 12th. And we got, you know, two, two Christmas The Christmas musicals, musicals going to be twice on the 12th at uh, 4 and 6. And then we got... Uh, Christmas Eve, I think we got four, five, and six, three of those. So it's going to be pretty cool. We got a lot of stuff, a lot of exciting times to worship. You know, in November, we got a lot of exciting times, times to fellowship and be thankful. And in Christmas, we got a lot of exciting times uh, to worship. So it's, we come to uh, First uh, Corinthians chapter 8. And for a little bit, chapter 8, 9, and 10 kind of, kind of go together. It's a lot about freedom. And I'll discuss freedom uh, in a little bit. But this is... The context of this, you have, it's always important to remember you know, that these churches that Paul wrote to, were, they just, most of the believers were Gentile. That's who Paul primarily reached was Gentiles. And they came out of these pagan backgrounds in worship of idolatry. And it's, it's hard for us to fully understand and grasp that religion in that day permeated every part of a person's life. It was always attached to their religious convictions. Judaism was included in that. Uh, everything they did, and that included paganism. Every part of Gentile life in Greco-Roman cities and cultures were influenced by the belief in the gods and goddesses and the worship of idols and the belief in demons and demigods and just everything you can imagine plays such an important part. And when you came out of that world into Christianity, your spiritual aspect of your life came out, but your physical life was still there. It doesn't, you were surrounded, your family was still there. And, and you're constantly battling the, the things that were part of your life. To, to a Jewish believer, that was no issue. They had no problem with all the idolatry stuff because that wasn't, that wasn't ever a part of their life. But the Gentiles, it was, it was just integrated in who they were. They couldn't, you couldn't separate that out of the culture. There was, there was no separation in their minds of, of how they lived politically and, and socially and culturally and how they lived in, in their faith. You know, Americans, even though our faith is an important part of who we are, we have an ability to compartmentalize. We can kind of separate out. We, we can look at things that way. And they just couldn't do it. So what you see is a part of that. And, and, and Paul, the brilliant Jewish scholar that he was, and pulling them out of paganism, when he initially taught them, gave them a foundation. But it, it, it was just their day-to-day life was tough. They didn't, have, they didn't have a New Testament, you know. They, they didn't have experienced Christians who could guide them through that. They couldn't go to their pastors, you know, and, and get counseling how to get all that. It, it was a tough battle for them. And so Paul writes this letter. Now in chapter 7, he begins now saying, by those, now concerning those things you, you wrote me about. And, and, and that same mindset comes over in chapter 8. So in chapter 8, he says, now concerning things sacrificed to idols. Concerning the things you sacrificed to idols. In Acts 15, uh, there's that great council in Jerusalem that happened um, six, seven years before this. In which the church at Jerusalem recognized that Gentiles did not have to convert to Judaism. But what they said was, 
You do need to leave behind your pagan lifestyle. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to follow all the, the calendar days and all the Jewish law. But don't commit adultery, which, by the way, fornication and adultery was a part of the worship of idols. That was all integrated. Don't worship idols. And, you know, don't do certain things with your food. Not just, they always say it was to kind of compromise with the Jews. It really wasn't. It was because that was part of their, their, their background. And everything they did, how they, how, they, how they butchered animals, how they killed animals and slaughtered animals, was all a part of their pagan background. They said, you've got to leave your paganism behind you. That was so critical of that for them. He says, now concerning things sacrificed to idols. And when you sacrifice to idols, there was public and there were private. The public sacrifice, the private sacrifice, you would, you would go and you would sacrifice the item in the temple. And then you, you'd keep some of the meat for you. Some of the meat would go to the priest. And then some of the meat would be used. And they didn't have refrigeration, so you had to use quick. They would have a feast. And so you might have a private feast. And you could have a private feast at the temple. Most of the pagan temples had rooms, and you could, you could make a sacrifice, you can invite your friends and family, and you, you could celebrate and, and eat that meat that you just sacrificed to whatever pagan idol you did. It's not unlike today, I saw someone in the day had to celebrate their birthday, and they invited friends over to celebrate their birthday, and you know, they had a potluck and all that, and they celebrated together. It's that sense of celebration. Or you could have a public sacrifice, and when that happened, you sacrifice, they took some of the meat, went to the, 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 still went to the priests and all that, and then the rest went out to the butchers. And they would, they would, then they would sell the meat sacrificed to the butchers and the meat markets. And we'll see that later on in a few weeks. We, we deal with that a little bit more uh, down the line. And, and part of the reason that these sacrifices were so important is they believed in all these demons and demigods and, and, and they believed that when an animal died, it was possible for the meat to be possessed by evil spirits. So they would take it to the gods and goddesses. They wanted to make sure the meat had somehow been cleansed and purified. And so this was all a part of this convoluted religious system, which was based on the fact that they made up these gods. They were completely made up. I mean, they created a system which didn't have any basis of reality and then lived their life scared of the system that they had created. So he says, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes us arrogant, but love edifies. It's believed by many that the phrase, we know that we all have knowledge, that Paul was quoting something they said. Knowledge was important. That there's two different words for knowledge. And, and I don't want to make a, a fine distinction between them, especially in our, but there's some subtle distinctions. The first word that we know comes from a Greek word that has this basis to perceive, to have the information that allows you to perceive. The word for knowledge, I'm reading from the American Standard, comes from a word that means more or less to gather facts. They both can mean that. But the second word, knowledge, um, our word gnosis, you know, knowledge comes from that. They're agnostic, without knowledge. It's the idea that you gather information, but the first word comes from the word gnosko, means that you, you know something about something. Put it to you this way. I have information about my wife that I will never share, but I, I, know, I know when she was born. I know how tall she is. I was going to say I know the true color of her hair, but it shows up all the time when she, she's here. I know all those things. That's common knowledge. I know her birthday. Yeah, you can find that out. 
But I also know her. I know how she thinks. <laughs> I know what's on her mind, because trust me, she tells me. I, I know her strengths and weaknesses. I know her admiration and, and her love for me that's so deep. And how she just swoons every time I walk into a room. I know her. You, most of you have knowledge of her. You know her a little bit. Some of you may know her, especially people around her staff, and know about her. That's the difference. He says, we, we perceive that we all have factual knowledge. He said, but that knowledge, that knowledge can make us arrogant. And, and that's the problem. Knowing things can make you arrogant. He says this, but love edifies or builds up. And the word for love, the word agape, is that self-sacrificial love. And I've told you this many, many times. Outside the New Testament, agape is so rare that there's very few examples of it and there is no understanding what the meaning is. Somewhere along the way, when Jesus spoke Greek and used the word, and whenever he used that word, and the biblical writers used the word agape to describe the love that Jesus is talking about, and they talk about it takes a new meaning that has the idea of God's kind of love for us. Self-sacrificial love. It's the highest form of love. Everything he's about to say after this for the next few chapters is predicated on the fact that loving people builds them up. You love people. You care about them. Every day, just about every day, I say, God, help me have a pastor's heart to love people and a servant spirit to serve them. Today, this, today I said, Lord, I'm going to see a lot of people today. Somehow help me find a way to love them, even when it's not easy. That, that, that was, I didn't say that, seriously. That was a joke. <laughs> Jolly. I don't, y'all don't know much, evidently. Verse 2 said, if anyone supposes that he knows anything, that he perceives anything, but yet has not known or perceived as he ought to know. There's the idea that you know so much that you have this perception, but you don't. He says, but if anyone loves God, notice he is known by him. Not that God knows who you are, but that God knows you intimately. That, in that case, it's the idea of, of that relationship. So love, the love you have for God, it's predicated on love he has for you, is an indicator of the relational aspect you have with God. As Christians, this dominates. The primary factor in our dealing with people is not knowledge that we have about anyone or anything. It's the love we have for them. It's the love that drives us and compels us to have compassion. It's the love that drives us and compels us to be understanding. It's the love that drives us and compels us to be patient. And it's the love that drives us and, care, and, and compels us to care more about them than whether we're always perceived as being right about everything. You ever met someone who always has to be right, and always knows a little bit more than anybody else? Nobody likes them. But you know people that love and care for you? Everybody likes them. We all do. They're so much different. John Maxwell, I remember he's the first person I ever heard say this. I know he didn't coin it. He said, people don't care about how much you know until they know how much you care. Fundamental to who we are as believers is that we care about people. We care about one another, and we care about all those lost people who walk through the door of our church so often. We care about them. 
we want to help them. We're, we're willing sometimes to, to put up with some things that make us uncomfortable because we care about them enough to want them to come to Christ and we don't want to turn them away. Should be that. A lot of churches don't have that view. Especially in the old days in the Baptist world. They didn't care much. They, they would turn someone away rather than care about them enough to bring them in. Our, our love for people edifies and builds up. With that in mind, we're going to come to the problem at hand. Therefore, having said that, Paul says, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. Some people think that both of those, what he just said, is also something that maybe coming back to Paul in a letter were said or slogans. I don't know if it is. But here's the thing. There is really no such thing as an idol. In other words, there is no substance behind the idol. The idol doesn't represent reality. It represents the creation in our minds. Now, let me understand. An idol is, a, is an actual object. I think uh, when Joe was teaching in August, I think he talked about idols. We use the word idol inappropriately all the time. I, I heard someone say, you know, your pride is your idol. No, it's not. Pride is not an idol. I heard someone say about someone, you know, about someone who sings, you, 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 you know, you're standing up in front of people and getting recognition has become your idol. It's not an idol. It's just pride. An idol is a literal object that we bow before in worship because we think it literally represents deity. Now, you can idolize someone. And hold them in high regard. You can have your sports idols and your music idols. That's a different world and that's different. We're talking about from the faith context. Now, we don't have idols in our world. It's crazy. I mean, we don't, in your world, you probably don't have any idols. Fundamentally behind the principle, you can have some things. And we'll see some principles in a minute. But the important thing here isn't the idols. It's the attitude towards the people who think that the idols represent reality. That's what we're going to get behind. So, in a sense, we can say, well, this doesn't apply to us. We don't, we don't worship. Nobody here worships idols. Nobody has never, probably none of you have ever sacrificed to an idol. Unless you've gone to foreign lands, you've probably, you've probably never eaten anything that was sacrificed to an idol. This doesn't have anything to do with us. Technically, it doesn't. Except what is behind it does. There are no idols. There is no God but one. And that, that's a true statement. God is just one God. Now, there is the danger, there's the possibility that this, if they're repeating a slogan, that it may have a little bit different connotations. And we do need to be careful when we say there is no God but one, we need to understand what we mean by that. We mean there is but one God to us, and that God reveals himself through us through the pages of Scripture. He reveals himself to us most clearly in Jesus Christ. Unitar a lot of people say there's one God. Remember last week I said all roads lead to God, and they think all roads lead to God. So be careful that the, the I, some people say there's, there's only one God, and we're all working our way towards that same God. This is not the connotation we take. And they would not have thought that way because they thought there were many gods. But in our culture, we can say, yeah, there's one God, and we're all working towards that God. No, we're not. The idea of one God is there's but one God to worship. So he says, for even though there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, 
yet there is but one God, the Father. Now, verse 5, he does say that there are so-called gods. He's recognizing the reality that existed that people thought there were legitimate deities or spiritual realities behind the idols. This is hard for us to grasp, this part. People who left paganism didn't necessarily stop believing that there were other entities that one could worship and serve. They just became followers of Christ. You hear me say all the time, when you become a follower of Christ, you don't have to understand everything there is to understand. You ever heard me say that? You don't have to. You don't even have to, you don't even have to get the Old Testament. Don't imagine, because we've grown up in a culture that worships but one God, that when they came to Jesus, they automatically flipped a switch and didn't think anything else existed. In fact, we, know, we still believe other spiritual entities exist. We believe in angels and demons. We do. And some, some put more emphasis on them than others. I don't put a lot of emphasis on them. It's just not the way I do things. Some people you know, think they're de- the demonic is behind all sorts of things, and that's fine. I am not going to argue with you about that unless you force me to. So, you know, there's some sense of that could come into play. But the reality is, Paul is not, Paul is not trying to spend his time to say, none of these spiritual entities exist, you're wasting your time, get over and grow up. That is not his argument. He is recognizing that in some of their minds, There was a reality that we understand and he understand did not exist, but it impacted them. This is so important. Sometimes it's hard for us to understand, why why do you think that way? But the fact that I can't grasp the rationale behind how they think doesn't mean that how they think isn't legitimate to them. And I have to find a way to deal with them in that place. And love is going to be the secret. Now, you'll see that more as we go on. So he says this, yet for us there is but one God. Notice, for us. Forget though, as you're a follower of Jesus now, there's just one God. He's the Father. From whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom or all things, and we exist through him. So what it's saying is this, there's one God. He is the Father. One part, one God, but there are multiple persons, three, Father, Son, Spirit, and he's talking about two of them. So the Father, everything comes from or out of him, and we exist into or in him. So everything that creates comes out from God, we who are part of that creation through Christ come into a relationship with him. He is the only God. We know that. So he, he's, he's talking to people who are secure in that. There are some who live with this reality. They think there are other spiritual entities out there. But he says, you know there's one God. And there's one Lord, Jesus Christ. And through Jesus Christ, by whom or through whom are all things, and we exist through him. So our connection to God in whom we now reside is through Jesus. We know that. One God, Father, though, and Son, and through the Son, we exist with the Father. So that's a doctrinal statement that he lays the foundation. So he said two things. He's talked about the need for loving people, having compassion and concern for them. He's talked about a doctrinal reality that as a believer they should know, and the mature believer will know this, 
And some of them got it. A lot of the young people that just came over from paganism, they struggled. Those Jews, and some of these believers were Jews, they all got that. With that in mind, he comes to the heart of dealing with this. However, not all men have this knowledge, this information. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it was sacrificed to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled or polluted. So here's what he's saying. We got this. However, some are really new believers. That's what he's saying. Or they have not grown and matured in believers. So the knowledge you and I have about God, they don't fully have this knowledge yet. Their habit is to believe in idols, and there's something behind the idols. And even though they have come to Christ, they have not quite yet let go of this understanding or feeling that there are something spiritual behind the idols. And so for them to eat the food that was once sacrificed to idols becomes a huge problem for them. Their conscience, their, their morality. The conscience here is that the understanding between the moral right and wrong, he says their conscience is weak. Now weak here means more along the lines if it's not, it's not developed. It's not mature. And so they become defiled. So they think, gosh, if, if I eat food that's been offered to an idol, then I'm all over again giving my allegiance back to these gods and goddesses. And, and that's crippling. It's devastating to them. They don't, they don't understand that those gods and goddesses don't exist. They, haven't, they don't have the knowledge you have. They're growing in their faith. All around, listen, all around us are people who are growing in their faith every Sunday. We have so many people who are coming who are either unchurched, underchurched, or dechurched. Unchurched means they've not really gone to church. Underchurched means they, they've come from a church or they grew up in a church where they didn't get much information. They didn't learn anything. They didn't grow. Dechurched means they left the church and started coming back. All of those situations have to be so gentle and so careful as to what we teach and what I teach and preach so that I can bring them along and make sure that I can help them through their conscience grow and understand truth. And I make sure that I can help them get to a point where they can grasp reality. See, on a Wednesday night, I can come with y'all and I can be more, a little more blunt. I can be a little more precise. I don't have to be as careful. But with them, I do. But food, he says, will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do. It doesn't matter to us. It doesn't, we know that this is just, this is nothing. This food offered, it's nothing. But we have to take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Now, the word liberty is the word ekousia, which means authority. It's freedom. Sometimes, remember when I first sermon I preached in October about the authentic Jesus, and they said, who is this? What authority do you do this? And the authority or power is the authority that's inherent. As a believer in Christ, I have an inherent freedom. Paul's going to talk about this freedom in chapter 9. We'll see that several, many weeks away. Not many, but down the line. Once I'm a follower of Jesus, I've been freed from the law. I've been freed from 
paganism. I've been, free, I've been freed from all these rules and regulations. I have a freedom, a liberty. I have an authority. I have the, I have the right to live free. But what do I do with that right? Because I also have a responsibility, and he's fixing to get into that. We live in a country, in a culture, where all we hear about is our rights, our rights, our rights, our rights, and we never hear about a responsibility. Fundamental to a follower of Jesus is the responsibility to love people, which may mean that from time to time, my freedom and my rights, I put aside. So he says, you don't want to be the stumbling block. You don't want to be the reason a person fails or falls. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? In other words, would he not look at you eating and say, okay, well, it's okay to eat. I don't want to be left out. My family's encouraged me, so I'll do it, even though deep down it's, it's a sin for that person. For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The word means destroyed. It's, it's the word, it's the same kind of concept of, of eternally destroyed. It doesn't mean they're eternally destroyed, but it means it's, they've been devastated. The brother for whose sake Christ died. The brother in Christ, the one who Jesus died for, he looked at you, saw what you were doing, and went along. And it destroyed his conscience, damaged his faith irreparably. They're still saved, but it was irreparably damaged. Because why? You exercise your rights without thinking about the responsibility of the person you love. And so by sinning, notice he says, against the brethren and wounding their conscience when he is weak, well, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. He doesn't say he didn't. He's just saying, if that's the point, that if I, I will give up meat in the Gentile communities. Doesn't mean that when he goes back to Antioch or back to Jerusalem, he'll give it up. But when I'm there with you, if I have to give that up, because the only meat I can get is offered to idols, well, I give it up because I don't want them to stumble. I, uh, I don't drink alcohol at all. I'm a Baptist preacher. I don't think Baptist preachers should drink. I don't care what Methodist Presbyterians do. I'm a Methodist Presbyterian. There are several reasons I don't drink. It's not because the Bible teaches abstinence. I've heard that argument. It's a ridiculous argument. Of course it doesn't. Jesus drank wine. Wine is, wine is not grape juice. All those preachers that tried to convince you wine was grape juice lied to you. You know, they were extremely ignorant, which means that's not good. You had an ignorant preacher. Well, they just made it up. That's not good. But, you know, I come from a family of alcoholics on my dad's side, so I, 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 know, what, I know the damage it does. I don't like the taste of it. I just don't like the taste of alcohol. But here's the other thing I know. I'm a Baptist pastor. Traditionally, historically, and culturally, Baptist pastors don't drink. As a Baptist pastor, I accept that. I know that I could with a clear conscience, drink some wine. Especially if I have an upset stomach. Paul said, do that. I could do that. <laughs> I have guys, especially younger guys. Well, I, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm not going to let people dictate to me what I can't do. We can. You know, I have one arrogant. He's not even a pastor anymore. He's just arrogant. He's one of the guys I helped raise up in ministry, and I regret everything I ever did. I'd shoot him if I could. 
pompous. Now he's an attorney. That fits. <laughs> well, if my Lord and Savior drank wine, how am I going to be blah, blah, blah to Jesus and condemn him by me not doing this stupid stuff people comes out of their mouth? I don't want to be across the street at the game eating lunch on Sunday or any day with a beer or a glass of wine and somebody from our church come in and see me and think, the pastor's drinking. I guess it's okay then. And they start drinking. And then they can't handle it. And Monday morning at 3 o'clock, they're driving a car inebriated 156 miles an hour and they wreck another car and they kill who's in there and they go to jail. People die, which is what happened to a Las Vegas Raider athlete. I don't want to end up like my dad and my Uncle Bill and my Uncle Buddy and my Uncle Eddie and be a bunch of alcoholics who died too young because they saw me do that. Because, by golly, I have the right to do it. Now, that's me as a Baptist preacher. I don't care if you drink. I see some people, I see church members drink all the time. I don't care. As long as they're not on staff. I care about that. I tell those guys all the time, if you want to sneak away, to a state four borders over <laughs> and buy it and you hide it somewhere under your mattress and no one ever knows, it's okay. You ever do it and it gets back to me, you better have your resume dusted off. I don't care if you don't drink. Don't, let, don't cause me problems over it. I would prefer deacons don't drink. I can tell you, I, didn't, I inherited what I got so I can't tell you what to do. But I know this. I'm not going to risk it. Now, you can say, well, it's easy for you. You don't like alcohol anyway. It's true. You know what I like to do? I love to gamble. I love to play poker. You know what I don't do? I don't play poker. Because I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't do any of that stuff. I don't want people, I don't go to Vegas because I don't want people to think I went gambling. If I do go to Vegas, I didn't gamble, trust me. But I haven't gone to Vegas. There are things that I could do. I don't. Now, there's some things that people are silly about. I grew up Baptist, you know, Preacher, you, you shouldn't work on Sunday. You shouldn't cut the grass or that. You're not supposed to work on Sunday. I'm a Southern Baptist preacher. I work every Sunday. I get paid to work Sunday. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Don't work Sunday, preachers. But just, we can't work on Sunday. Well, how do you think I make a living? Ding dong. I'm not going to let a bunch of stupid rules and regulations. I'm not going to let people say, you shouldn't listen to rock and roll. It's of the devil burn your record. I'm not going to listen to what a bunch of Baptists and Christians tell me I shouldn't do. That's not the same thing. Legalism is not what he's talking about. This is about a young believer who's struggling morally, not someone controlling my life and dictating to me what I can and can't do. The reason I don't drink is because someone tells me I can't. That's not it. That's not, gonna be, that's not the reason. The reason I don't drink is because I'm concerned that someone I love may stumble. No one's going to stumble if I go to a movie on Sunday afternoon. No one's going to stumble if I listen to classic rock, which I do. But there will stumble. And here's the thing we got to understand. We got to balance legalism. We're not going to be legalistic. No. And we got to balance libertarianism. I can do whatever I want. And we got to find that sweet spot. But that sweet spot exists in love. So I'm going to do my best to love people. In the course of loving them, I'm going to do my best not to be a stumbling block. And if I am a stumbling block, I'm going to ask God 
and I'm going to ask them to forgive me. If I'm truly a stumbling block, if I simply tick somebody off because they didn't like a decision I made as pastor, they're not going to pull that card with me because I know the difference. I'm talking about a young in the faith believer who I may cause to stumble in their faith. That I'm not going to do. So make the distinction. If you just get mad at me, don't play this card because they ain't going to cut it. To anyone, don't let anyone play that card with you. But love people enough to care about their faith. That is what we do. And because of that, it would be wrong for me to keep you past 7 o'clock. So I won't do that.